0: All right, everybody. Hey, go ahead and start making your way back to your seats. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> guys, those were my kids. I would, I, if I'm being 1,000% honest, which 1,000 is a lot, but I'd rather be with them than you, but I love you guys. I do. Who wanted to sing me happy birthday? Sadie, was that you? Wow. Thank you so much. I know, right? I guess Laura hates me, but you love me, and I appreciate that immensely, immensely. Happy birthday is like a very normal thing to celebrate and sing to somebody. Laura, why do you hate that song so much? Do you hate me secretly? (laughs) Oh my goodness, guys. I know what I just said that I'd rather be with my kids, but that's understandable, but we have missed you. It's been like two months and I have been so lost without you, just so lost. I formed an addiction to solitaire. Like, that's what happens when you're gone for two months. Like, in the summer, I kind of know what to do. But in the winter, when it's cold out, I just—but not solitaire on, like, a computer. Like, solitaire with cards, like, on the table. And Natalie's like, do you want to watch TV or do something else? And I'm like, no, I think we're just going to play solitaire. Like, I even asked for nice cards for Christmas so that my solitaire playing was more enjoyable. And it has been. It has been an enjoyable experience playing with really nice cards. But that's what we do when you're gone. So I'm so happy that you are here. If this is your first time at Salt Company, welcome. You met my kids, Isla and Jack. Isla is three. Jack is going to be two in a couple months, which is awesome. My wife's name is Natalie. We've been married almost for five years, which is exciting. And Natalie is pregnant. So many announcements since you guys left. Yeah. (laughs) Here's the thing that I am really looking forward to with a third baby, and it's this, not being constantly freaked out all the time. Like literally with Isla, we were freaked out if she coughed. It was like, oh my goodness, is she gonna die? You know, every time she made like a movement that wasn't normal, we thought she was dead. So we made several trips to the ER to the point where they kicked us out of the ER multiple times and told us we were idiots. One of those, she threw up. We take her to the ER and they're like, it's a baby, they throw up, go home, don't come back. (laughs) The second time, okay, the second time was a little bit more understandable why we went to the ER. So I'm like watching the Olympics, it's February, it's cold out, Isla is three months old, Natalie is getting supper ready, it's time for Isla to wake up. So I go upstairs in our house in Ames, wake Isla up, we're playing, we're having a good time, I change her diaper, I pick her up And I start making my way into our hallway to come back downstairs with Isla, three month old baby. So at this point, they're not like super fragile where if you look at them, they break, but they like, you know, she's still very small, very small child. So I'm carrying Isla, I get to the steps, I step, first step, somehow, though I have walked down steps my entire freaking life, (laughs) this time I couldn't figure it out. I take a step on the first step and my foot slips out from underneath me and I go flying in the air. And I am like dad mode instincts immediately. So I'm like covering up Isla, holding her, protecting her. And I just smash the stairs. I mean, my back hurt for three weeks after this. We just hit the steps hard, very hard. And so I land, we like, you know, crash. Natalie like comes flying around the corner. What is going on? What is going on? I pull Isla over. I'm like fairly certain that because of the way I like, you know, cradled her that she hasn't like hit her head or anything, but I'm like nervous. She just starts bawling and we're like, okay, to the ER. Throw up, that was one thing. This is another. She could be dead. Like even though she's crying and clearly alive, like you never know, she could be dead. This could be a stunt. So we load her up in the car, we get to the hospital two blocks away, we fly into the ER waiting room, we get checked in, they make us wait for 30 minutes because they know this isn't a big deal, but we don't, we're first time parents. So finally, we get into the doctor's office, the guy comes, he does the examination, he does the diagnostic test, you know, all the things, and says, hey, your daughter is fine. We're like, oh, great, and I'm like, is there any sort of like scan that she needs to have, anything like that, and he goes, Honestly, no, we actually wouldn't recommend a scan unless, unless she fell out of like a two-story window or was in a car accident that was 60 miles an hour more. I'm like, what? That's the like threshold for a scan? A two-story window falling out? Like in my mind, there are so many other things that you would need a scan for up to the two-story window. But I guess if you, you know, God forbid you throw, like drop a baby out of a window Unless it's the second story, they're not scanning that baby, (laughs) which made me feel better, I suppose. So anyways, they tell us again, like your first time parents, you're fine. She's fine. Go home. Don't worry about it. we pack Isla up. We get home and it's great and she lives. We never went to the ER again. Yeah. Isla survived. As you can tell from the video, she's still as happy as can be. She can talk very well, you know, nothing wrong with that girl. Here's the thing, when you get into an ER waiting room, if you're anything like me, I am immediately, when I'm not you know, nervous about my daughter, what I do when I'm in a doctor's office or an ER waiting room is I scan the room and I try to figure out who's there and then I try to guess why they are there. You know, it's like, <coughs> it's like, oh, I know why you're here. <laughs> and then you're like looking for the person that has the gunshot wound and you're like, oh man, whose arm is missing, all those things. That's what I do. It's like, who walked in with no arm? chainsaw accident. It could happen. It would be an amazing ER experience, not for them, but for you to get to see. Like, it'd be cool. It'd be cool. Sorry, arms grow back. Don't worry about it. That's what I do. But imagine an outside observer coming into an ER waiting room and trying to just scan. What that person would find is that there are two groups of people present in an ER waiting room. There are some people that when you scan the room, gunshot wound, you know, arm missing, it's very obvious why they are there. It's very obvious that they have a problem, that they are sick, that they need a doctor. But then there are other people. There are other people in that room that as the outside observer is looking at the waiting room, it's not immediately obvious why that person's there. Like for us, by the time we're in the waiting room, Isla's laughing, she's giggling. You would never know that five minutes ago, You know, I barely killed her, almost killed her, you know. (laughs) That's at least what I thought. You never know. From the outside looking in, it's not obvious what the sickness is. But that doesn't mean that there's not a sickness that needs to be addressed by a doctor. We're going to look at a story tonight that very similarly has two groups of people in it. Two groups of people that are sick, and just like the ER waiting room, there's some people in this story that their sickness is immediately obvious. It's apparent. Everyone from the outside can tell, yep, that person is sick and they need help. But there's another group of people in this story that any outside observer, if they were to look at their life from the outside, they would never think anything was actually wrong with them. And even the people themselves, because their life on the outside looks so put together, don't know that there is actually a sickness within them that needs addressed. So if you got a Bible, Matthew 9 is where we are going to be at for this story. It's a story of Jesus calling a man named Matthew to be one of his disciples. As you can see from the graphics that the great Kaylee Hesner drew for us, Follow Me is the series that we're starting tonight. And in this series, we're trying to answer the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be one of his disciples? And so we're going to talk about things like reading your Bible and confessing sin and being a church member and going on mission for Jesus. But here's the reality. All of those aspects of following Jesus will make no sense unless you see what is at the heart of Christianity tonight. That as Jesus interacts with Matthew and these two groups of people, we are going to catch a glimpse at what is at the heart of his message for the world. And we're going to see that at the heart of Christianity is a message that God does not relate to us based on who we are or what we have done, but on the basis of his grace. So let's look at Matthew 9. We're going to see kind of three questions, three aspects of what it meant for Matthew to follow Jesus. First, what did Matthew have to leave? Second, who did he follow? And third, where was he called to go? So when Jesus calls Matthew, what was he called to leave? Who was he called to follow? Where was he called to go? So let's read all of Matthew 9, 9 through 13. We'll read all the verses, then we'll work our way through it. So here's what it says. As Jesus went on from there, there he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Question number one, what was Matthew called to leave? So you got Jesus. He's doing all sorts of ministry in this region called Capernaum. He's doing miracles. He's teaching. He's doing all sorts of things and on the heels of healing a paralytic him and his disciples are heading back home and they come across this toll booth a tax collector's booth and in this tax collector booth is a man named matthew he's a tax collector and jesus shockingly goes up and invites matthew to follow him now why was this shocking tax collectors at this time worked for the roman empire So they were Jews by nationality. And when the Romans overtook the Jewish community, Israel, and set up the Roman occupation, they were going to tax the people. So they invited people, Jews, to work for them, to be tax collectors. And what made this horrific in the eyes of the Jewish community was these guys would increase the rates and fees of the taxes and they would get rich off their own people. And so in the eyes of the Jewish community, these tax collectors were despicable. They were despised, they were wicked men who were getting rich off the backs of their own people. They were traitors, they were cheats, and they were helping helping Rome maintain their occupation over their people. They were despised. So this would be shocking that Jesus would go up to this tax collector's booth and invite him to follow him. So if you're a disciple following Jesus now for potentially several months, you're shocked. Here you are coming off the heels of this amazing ministry experience. Several of the disciples are from Capernaum. So it's even likely that Matthew may have taxed them at times. And Jesus says, hey, we need to go stop at that tax booth. There's someone I want to talk to. And so maybe in the minds of the disciples, they're thinking, all right, yeah, let's go, let's go talk to this guy, Matthew. He, you know, he cheated me a couple weeks ago. Jesus is going to ha- let him have it. Let's go see what Jesus has to say to him. And they're shocked when Jesus says, hey, I want you to be a part of my crew. Just flabbergasted, just blown away. What Jesus, don't you know who this guy is? Why aren't you chewing him out? Equally shocked is Matthew. Matthew can't believe what just happened. Think about the life that Matthew would have lived. He is hated by his community. He knows he's cheated his own people to get rich. Matthew would have led a very lonely life He wasn't invited probably home to family reunions. His mom and dad wouldn't talk about him. He had no friends outside of the other pitiful lowlifes like him. All of his friends from high school got real jobs and he taxed them and stole from them from their real jobs. When he'd walk through the streets, it was judgmental stares. Maybe early on it was fun as he initially started to get wealth and influence with the Roman Empire, but pretty quickly it became a very lonely life. He had all the wealth, but no friends. Literally the only thing I could think about when I was thinking about Matthew was Rich and Sad by Post Malone. That is my dishwashing song. <laughs> Got a hundred big places, but I'm still alone. I've literally cried while washing dishes to that song. I just, it gets me in the feels, I love it. <laughs> Posty completely describes Matthew's life. He's got a hundred big places, but he's all alone. Like a huge house, a huge Christmas tree, but there's no presents under that tree. He is all alone. He's got the wealth. He's got the influence, but he compromised all along the way to get it. And now he's lost his friends. He's lost his family. He's lost his reputation. He's despised And then if you're Matthew, you start to hear this buzz. There's this teacher, this miracle worker in town, and he's kind of the up-and-coming teacher, the up-and-coming rabbi, and he's going around your region healing people and teaching. You kind of hear about him. And then there's this day where you look off in the distance, you're sitting in your tax booth, and you see him. You're like, oh, that's him. I know it's him. And immediately you both want to run and hide, but also you kind of want to go talk to him. And Jesus starts walking towards your tax booth. And you're like, oh my, is he, is he walking towards me? I think he's looking at me. And as he gets closer and closer, you just want to duck because you begin to become uncomfortably aware of all of your shame, of all of the people that you've cheated. You're even seeing the people Jesus is with and you're like, oh, I've definitely cheated that guy, that guy, and that guy. And as Jesus gets closer, you begin bracing yourself to hear the same speech that you've heard over and over again. You are worthless, you are despicable, you are trash. So you're bracing, Jesus is there. And instead of those words, you hear the most wonderful, unexpected, powerful words you'll ever hear in your entire life. Two words that will change the rest of your life. Follow me. Follow me. You're stunned. It's like, did I I hear that right? Follow me. And it's like Jesus nods, like, yeah, man, follow me. I want you. And so Matthew immediately gets up and he follows. He leaves the tax booth and he follows Jesus. It's amazing. It's shocking. It's unexpected. Matthew leaves the stealing, he leaves the cheating, he leaves this tax booth that has trapped him for years now, and he follows Jesus. Whether you realize it or not, you are also trapped in a tax booth. So many things in life are like that tax booth. They promise us fulfillment, and all we have to do is compromise a little to get it, but in the end, it costs us our life. So many things in life are like that tax booth. They promise you the world, but they cost you your life. What is the tax booth that you're trapped in? What is the sin that you are trapped in tonight? The thing that you're hoping will bring fulfillment in your life, and yet you're compromising to get it hoping that it will bring you the satisfaction you've always wanted. And yeah, it might make you bend on the rules a little, but that's okay. But the longer you've been in it, the more and more you felt trapped and the less and less it's delivering on its promises and the more and more it's costing you. What is your tax booth? Is it the boyfriend you know you need to break up with? Is it the partying that no one knows about? Is it the pornography that you're enslaved to? Is it drugs and alcohol? Is it the lies that you tell people? Is it the unfair gossip that you spread about others to make yourself feel better? What is your tax booth? What is the shame and guilt that you feel trapped in? If Jesus were walking by tonight, what would he tell you to leave and to leave forever? Sin will kill you. Maybe initially it feels good. Maybe initially it does deliver on a few of those promises. But in the end, it will kill you. And it will cost you your life. Today it doesn't feel like a big deal. But tomorrow you will realize that you are trapped and enslaved to something that will never deliver on its promises. What? is your tax booth. You need to hear two words that will change your life forever, follow me. Now this is what Matthew is called to leave. He's called to leave the tax booth that he's been trapped in. He's called to leave the thing that he's looking for fulfillment in, but is compromising to get it and it's not delivering. That's what he's called to leave. But as the story unfolds, unfolds, we're gonna begin to see that who he is called to follow is unlike anyone that you had ever expected. In fact, the person who he is called to follow is so unexpected that most of us have a wrong conception of who he is. So Matthew, in his excitement to follow Jesus, invites all of his friends over for a party. And here's what unfolds, verse 10. While he was reclining at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Matthew throws this huge party. He invites his only friends, other tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors, people who had the same job as him. Sinners, these are people that their sin is public. Everybody knows there's no hiding the ways in which they sin. It's obvious to the outside looking in that they are a sinner. So this would be the prostitutes, the criminals, the drunks, the lowlifes. This is the party that Jesus is at, reclining. He is totally relaxed at this party with this group of people. And as they're relaxing, laughing, joking around, hanging out, spending time together, this group of people named Pharisees walk by. Now, Pharisees, these were the religious elite of the day. They were in an elite religious sect that observed the law extremely uh, devoutly. These were the upright, good-standing guys in the community. And as they walk by, they see this party that Jesus is at, and they see who's at this party, and they pull aside some of the disciples. They're like, hey, what is going on? Right? Verse 11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? Who would do this? What up and coming rabbi would risk his career by associating with these kinds of people? Who hangs out with those kinds of people? They couldn't believe it. These were good religious people who don't spend time with those sorts of people. And before you're too hard on the Pharisees, you've got to realize that we do this every single day. Do you realize that most days when you feel good about yourself, it's because you've been comparing yourself to someone that you think you're better than? And a lot of days when you feel bad about yourself, it's because you've been comparing yourself to someone that you think you're better than. There's a reason why we all laugh at this joke. When I feel bad about myself, I go to Walmart at 2 a.m. Well, normal people laugh at that because we're sinful and we compare ourselves because Walmart at 2 a.m. is a freak show. Thank you, you all know that's true at least. I guess I'm the only one that ventures to Walmart at 2 a.m. Have you seen the people there? All of us would feel pretty good about ourselves. Timmy, you have long hair, you would even feel good about yourself. (laughs) Guys, Walmart at 2 a.m., freak show. We feel better about ourselves when we think or when we perceive ourselves to be better than the people around us. We do this exact same thing. And so the Pharisees ask a very normal question. What is Jesus doing with these people? I mean, think about the shock in your mind if you saw one of your buddies with traitors and cheaters and swindlers and prostitutes and criminals and drunks. You'd be like, bro, what are you doing, man? Like, come on, you know, Mario. That's what that sounded like. Come on. You'd be like, what are you doing? So they ask a very obvious, understandable question. What is Jesus doing? You've got to realize that if Jesus were here today, he would probably spend a lot of time with people that we wouldn't be caught dead with. That people we wouldn't dare to associate, those would be the people that Jesus would spend the majority of his time with. So Jesus catches wind of this question and he answers them in verse 12 and 13. This is what he says. When he hears them asking this, he says this. Now, when he heard this, he said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus looks at the best of the best while he sits with the worst of the worst. And he said, look, I didn't come for you. I came for them. I came to be around them. I came for those who are sick and those who are sinful. That is who I came for. Those who are broken, the outcast, the people that you don't pay attention to. That's who needs a doctor. That's who I came for. Now, is when Jesus says this, is he saying, look, I came for these sinful people, but you righteous people I didn't come for. I came for these sick people, but you healthy people I didn't come for. No, he's not. Why? What would tell us that? Well, look back at verse 13. He gives them a challenge. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting from an Old Testament book there called Hosea. And at the time of Hosea, between Hosea and the other prophets writing, you begin to see a picture of Israel. A picture of Israel that was extremely religious. They made sacrifices. They did burnt offerings. They did all the religious things. But God will tell them, your heart is far from me. You don't love me. You don't understand mercy. God in the Old Testament in these days looks at Israel and says, look, you know all the right clothes to wear on Sunday. You know all the books to buy from Amazon. You know all the Christian things to say, but you have no passion for me. You have no relationship with me. You don't love me. And Jesus is saying that is true of you Pharisees. On the outside, you are so put together that you are blinded to the reality that you are not well, but you also are sick. You see, in this story, there's actually not just one person trapped in a tax collector's booth, but there's actually another. And it's these Pharisees, And their tax collector booth might not have been physical, but it was spiritual. They, too, were trapped in a tax collector's booth of religious performance, of a comparison game of how good am I compared to other people? Does God accept me based on how good I am? And they felt this constant pressure to perform, this constant pressure wondering, have I done enough for God to love me? And the only way that they could ease their minds about that was to compare themselves to the worst people they could think of. And that produced a tax collector booth of arrogance, of self-righteousness, of unkindness, of a lack of compassion. And in the midst of that tax, tax collector booth, they completely missed their spiritual sickness. There were two people... Two groups of people in this story. One, their sin is obvious. It's obvious from the outside looking in that they need a doctor. They need help. But there's another group of people that are just as sick with an internal sickness, but are blinded to it because of their religious performance, thinking that they've done enough for God to love them. But here's the reality, when we stop comparing ourselves to how good am I before God compared to other people, the worst people I can think of, to how good am I compared to the holy righteousness of Jesus, it evens the playing field. And we realize that there is a depth to our spiritual sickness, that there is nothing that we can do, but that we need the great physician who would take our sickness upon himself and go to the cross. We need the one that though he was truly righteous, substituted his righteousness for our sin so that we could have his righteousness and not pay the penalty for our sin. We needed the one who out of his great mercy would become the sacrificial lamb so that we could experience grace. You see, at the heart of Christianity is a God who does not relate to you based on who you are or what you have done, but on the basis of his grace. And if you miss that tonight, the next four weeks won't make much sense to you. So we're going to remind you a bunch in the next four weeks as we talk about aspects of following Jesus. But if you miss the heart of Christianity, you won't understand why we're drawn to read our Bibles, why we are freed to confess our sin, why we desire to be used by God in his mission, why we want to be in community with other Christians. The heart of Christianity is that God relates to us based on his grace. And as people who have received grace, what happens when we begin to follow Jesus? Well, number three, it changes where we go. You see, a few verses later, Jesus will look at Matthew and the rest of the disciples, and he'll say this, verse 36 of chapter 9. He said, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. When you leave the tax booth, when you realize that your relationship with Christ is based on his grace and not your performance, and when you begin to follow Jesus, Jesus will take you back into a broken world that's desperate for his grace. Jesus looked at a crowd of people who were dejected and distressed, who were broken and in the darkness of their sin, and the disciples who had called out a tax collector's booth, he said, we're going right back in with the message of grace and hope to people who are desperate for it. You see, when you see God's grace for you extended through Christ, it will change the way that you see the people around you. It will change the way you see the crowds. You'll begin to see people the way God sees them as people who are created in his image, who he desires a relationship with and out of an overflow of love and response to grace, you'll be moved to be ambitious to reach them with the gospel, to reach them with the message of grace and hope that we have in Christ. God calls us out of the tax collector booth to send us right back into a world with people that are in tax collector booths to share with them the message of grace. To tell them with boldness and courage that the tax collector booths that, that they're looking to for fulfillment and satisfaction, you can't find it there. But there is one who came and died for them who will set them free from sin and it's guilt. And they can have a relationship with him. Guys, that is the message of Christianity. So here's the question tonight. What is the tax collector booth you need to leave? what is the tax collector booth you need to leave? Have you recognized that you have a spiritual sickness before God that Jesus has dealt with on the cross? And as you understand that grace, let it move you to a place to being sent back into a world that's desperate for his grace. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, it's amazing that you Don't deal with us based on who we are, what we've done, but you deal with us based on your grace. That Christ came to the earth to look for those who are outcast and sinners and sick so that they could have life in him. That you called us out of the things that once trapped us into a life of following you where flourishing and joy and love is is possible. God, I pray that we will not be deceived by maybe our ability to keep our life together and miss the reality that all of us have a spiritual sickness. That God, compared to your holiness and righteousness, that each of us is desperate for your grace. God, I pray that as we realize that, that it would move us a place of joy in our relationship with you. That it would move us into a place of love and compassion, of humility and gentleness to a world that is desperate for your grace. God, I pray that it begin to transform us into people that spend time with people who need you. Spend time with people that are like the sorts of people Jesus spent time with. God, free us from the feeling that we have to perform in order to please you, but rather that we would rest in your grace. And as we do that, that it would end the comparison game, that it would end the insecurities that we feel, and rather fill us with courage to rest first in the grace that we've received in Christ, but then to be sent on mission for you, back into a world that is desperate for this message of hope and grace. Amen.